Hello again. I'm John Pear with the 14th episode of Pear's Poetry Podcast. If you're new here, perhaps because of a recommendation from a friend, fear not. You can catch up with the previous 13 episodes at your own pace. Our first poem is not the most traditional of sonnets, but it has 14 lines and greets the fifth birthday of the second of my four granddaughters, Eleanor. She's 20 now, so you can work out roughly when I must have written it. Eleanor's Big Day Miss Eleanor Pear has such fine golden hair that the sunlight upon it just dances. If you're at Rue Boyer or somewhere near there, you are sure of the bestest of chances that the flashes of light and the squeals of delight in the fourth week of May all arise from a smart little person. You've guessed it aright. Look who's coming across the horizon. It's Miss Eleanor P with her face full of glee, for today is so tender and one to remember, the one that you're most glad to see. For it isn't the summer or foggy November. Prepare to dance jive, for she's not just alive, it's the day that dear Eleanor's five. Our second poem today is from the miscellaneous section. I wrote it in August 2020 and I have no idea what prompted me to do so. Hands. Hands are so vital to us all, can give great joy and can appall. They can caress and they can soothe. They can be rough or really smooth, a giveaway what kind of work a person does. Does he just lurk behind an office desk or is he doing outside labour, viz in laying bricks or shaping wood or some hard labour that's as good? Hands can be cruel or really kind. They may give freedom or may bind. They can really expressive be or beckon that it's time for tea. Hands can make for good times in parks. Between lovers they can transmit sparks. Secured behind the back they may render secure one who makes hay by mugging folks or robbing banks. They're helpful too in giving thanks. I'm told they're very hard to draw. Arthritis makes each like a claw, inhibiting their daily use or help to clarify the abstruse, but at their best they show forth love or praise the Lord in heaven above. They calm the baby, soothe the child, placate the opponent, make him mild, or tell the loved one more than words, can make a mimescape, point out birds, communicate with someone who is hard of hearing, really do a hundred thousand useful things, and even crown our queens and kings. I wrote our third poem at the end of October 2018, I enjoy attempting to describe natural events or scenes, but at the end of the day, it is what I manage to convey to my reader, or in this case, listener. Feedback is always welcome. Autumn. A sharp frost, a clear sky, trees bare already or shedding multicoloured leaves, wind from the northeast bringing a fresh chill to the air, but the barometer set fair. A heron crosses the sky, though there is no water near, heavy flaps of its grey wings propelling it forward. If the Brazilian butterfly has such a reach, what of the heron? There are seagulls too, flying just below the high morning half-moon, visible despite the bright sun, and because of it, of course. 
They are far from the sea, but follow the rivers Wye and Severn up to these depths of Herefordshire. Autumn is fully here, herald of the quiescence of winter when the whole of nature hibernates. Daylight is scarce, temperatures drop, and we await the wakenings of spring. And lastly, here is um, part two of my travelogue poem um, of Marrakesh Holiday. The afternoon is spent in souk, intending to do more than look. We find the leather quarter where a hundred sellers have their lair. In fact, we find a friendly man who isn't just and also ran. For he sells slippers and the shoes, or slip-ons, that to choose in England is not often poss, so Marrock's gain is Britain's loss, as G buys but a single pair in yellow, while his spouse, so fair, has three in green and brown and black, so she will never suffer lack of footwear. Now we must get out of soup, and now it's dark, take a fresh look at Shnumar El Fnar with life ablaze. It hits us as we leave the maze. We eat at Islan's restaurant on lofty terrace as we want a peaceful view of graceful tower, Kutubia floodlit at this hour. The meal is good and we'll return as more of Marrakesh we learn. We try experimental way, not travelled in the light of day, and pass the fountain-fronted place, a super one to have as base for desert exploration, and a swimming pool bereft of sand. Past serried ranks of nuts and dates in neat or more untidy states, we walk unsure of our way home, when sudden to the square we come, a sparkle with the lamps, and full of smoke and smell in evening's cool. At our hotel we ask the staff, who know a man who's quite a laugh, Mustafa comes, he owns a car and he takes tourists near and far, but always where he wants to go, at breakneck speed, not ever slow. This much we learn from his two tomes of testimonials from the ones that he has shaken to the core by dangerous driving. He is sure they had a really lovely time, but he's the stuff of myth and rhyme. The morrow brings a fresh attempt, once breakfast eaten, all unkempt, to solve the mysteries of the souk. It does deserve a further look, but we look for the necklace bloke in hope he knows some taxi folk. Our first attempt goes quite amiss. It seemed much simpler then than this, as we came from the shop last eve. But into souk again we weave, and now we find him and his friend, who quickly understand our end. The driver comes and names a price to go where we wish. That is nice. That is 200 less than that which Mustafa propounded. What more is there now to do than wait at Tazi's door at five to eight? The drums beat out in Shmar el the pulse of Marrakesh, and all are drawn into the swear's enticing mess. A heady mix of smoke and smell and buzz and blare attracts the world to come and wander there. Well, that's it for episode 14 and uh, I'll be back with you in a week's time with 15. Thank you and goodbye. Hello again. 
I'm John Pear and this is episode 15 of Pear's Poetry Podcast, Differing Viewpoints. As usual, I'm starting with a sonnet. I have no date for this one, but imagine I wrote it in or around 2000 when I was regularly going down for meetings in London, either for clarity, a movement to try to persuade fellow lawyers to use plain language, or what is now Resolution, then the Solicitors Family Law Association. England. The England of 2000 summer days flits past my static railway window frame. Its stately sunlit silence contrasts with the clatter of the rail joints on each wheel. No movement on this windless warming morn save horsetail, bird, a solo car and shade, which seems to move or be moved through by grass and field and nearby oak or former grandeur of the sorry elm. The sky of pale bright blue enfolds the scene with greyish speedless clouds side-lit by early low-slung sun which soon will dominate the hemisphere that forms a vaulted dome. Across this part of Shropshire I call home. For last November's meeting of the writers group Caroline and I belong to, we had to write something about horror. I had read an article suggesting that because of a tilt in Earth's axis over the centuries, astrologers' charts should rightfully include 13 rather than the traditional 12 sectors, for which reason many people were not under the sign that they had always been told they were, and some, of course, were under the 13th. Horoscope Astrology has been around for something like 3,000 years, but gravitational tides abound. For some, it might all end in tears. A star called Theuban was our north, but Earth's axis has since changed. The sun now has a different course against the constellations ranged around the universe entire and passes against full 13 now, a baker's dozen, just one higher. Oh, Ophiuchus, take a bow. You thought you were a Capricorn? Well, now you're Sagittarian. But don't do go getting all forlorn, just be humanitarian. Aquarians are mostly goats, and fish have aqua plentiful. Rams won't be getting many oats, because they're fish and bountiful. Many bulls have shrunk to sheep, and twins are mainly bullocks now. If you're a crab and sideways creep, you have a twin. Both take a bow. If you were maidens, now you are a lioness. Well, most of you. And if you hold a balance bar, you are a maiden made anew. The scorpions among you must resign yourselves to being fair. Although a few may grow a bust, and archers you must take a share, for some will gain a tailborne sting, a few will hold a pair of scales, but most will not be anything, for Ophiuchus has no tails. Attached to it by legends tell, though it's a constellation true, here's horror, not the road to hell, for there's no horoscope for you. Our third poem today is from my nature section, but rather than describe birds from our earthbound situation, I'm taking an imagined bird's eye view of humans. I wrote it in September 2017. 
bird's eye view. As he soared effortlessly on the updraft, barely flexing his mottled brown pinions to keep his steady place and look out, he saw far below him two humans, one male and one female, as he had learnt from the strange garb they wore, seemingly non-natural. He judged them about eight or nine buzzard years, though she looked decidedly the younger. He, the less likely to have changed the colour or his plumage, was somewhat badgerish, not that he ever had ever tackled one of those creatures. Too large, too aggressive, he preferred smaller prey. It was hard to hear the sounds they made from his altitude. It was clear that they mewed a lot more than he and his family did, but it was quite melodious when the fluky breeze carried their noise to his ears. With his keen eyes, he could tell that they looked directly at each other, something he could only do with one eye at a time. Frequently, and when they did their strange beaks, so two-dimensional and seemingly unmade for striking and consuming prey, curved upwards at the corners, something impossible for him. Further, when that happened to one of them, it seemed to be echoed by the other. Their strange wingtips seemed to be intertwined for much of the time, and often after those upturnings they reached closer to each other and either touched beaks or placed their scraggy wings around each other. This seemed to produce even longer contortions of their bills and mewings. He could only conclude that these earthbound beings had ways that might be as enjoyable as that which the uplifting of his wings by the warmed air rising from the valley below gave him, which always seemed better when his mate or a fledgling was up there with him. What about fledglings? These humans had none with them. Perhaps they had none at all, or maybe had hatched offspring, some of whom had not survived their early years, or who now had mates of their own and had flown the nest. He knew how that would feel. The losses were painful, but he still enjoyed every new hatching and the perils of their leaving the nest for the first time. The couple, as they walked, neared one of those strange moving boxes, drew out some sort of wing and disappeared within it. Presently it moved off. From his vantage point over the whole area, he could watch it moving towards the setting sun. For a few minutes, and came to a halt by a red structure adjoining a field he had visited once or twice, one that didn't seem ever to produce anything but grass. Fleetingly, he saw them exit the white box and enter the big red building, as the daylight faded, small squares lit up one by one. It was time to return to his family. By the way, a buzzard's average lifespan is about eight years, that of a human nearer 80, so 10 to 1. That was quite a long one, but today's poem from abroad is a shorter section from Marrakesh Holiday, with one final section to come in episode 16 next week. Marrakesh Holiday, part three. On Wednesday morning on our quest to climb the pass of Tis and Test, well, we have got the present day and seek the tanner's ancient way of treating hides with hideous stuff that makes it turn out far less rough. 
The jeweller's friend shows us the path, but we, and one's got to laugh, end up in yet another store with killims stacked up by the score. The answer, no, does not amuse, but we escape, not forced to choose. Another guide takes up the task. The first has gone to lunch. We ask to see the would-be leather soaked while sniffing mint so we're not choked. We need a newer guide to lead, which means another tip's decreed. We nearly get into a stew to find we're led to carpets new, excuse ourselves and make a dash towards the square to save our cash. A few false turns, but then we're there. Jamar Elfna's entrancing square. After some lunch on Terrace High with views of minaret against the sky, we go by Kalesh through the Malay to Le Jardin Majorel, where cacti grow and terrapin die through the lilies with their kin. We savour all the subtle hues and greens against blue from pathway views and wonder at Islamic art and YSL's domestic part. We shun the pricey horse-drawn way and take a taxi home today. We take advantage of the pool. It's pretty chilly as a rule, so longish swim we'd quickly rue, then do the crossword clue by clue. Tonight we dine in buffet style at Hotel Alley for a while. In Tazi's bar we try to reach a stage where we can start to teach the Barkers that fine game of cards, whose name is not the stuff of bards. The loser sounds to have upon his head another card game in its stead. The drums beat out in Tramar Elfna, the pulse of Marrakesh, and all are drawn into the square's enticing mesh. A heady mix of smoke and smell and buzz and blare attracts the world to come and wander there. So, there we are. At the end of another episode with number 16 due for release in a week's time. So long for now. Hello, it's John again with Pears Poetry Podcast for the 16th time. We start with a sonnet, as usual. I wrote this one in March 2017, probably because I was reflecting on my past failings and what the future held for me with Caroline. Future thoughts. While future time can never quite be now, it neither is a second more behind. Do we stop ever, though, to wonder how the past we treasure we cannot unwind? The past is past, the present is our field, to sow the seeds our future crops to yield. If we do not full currently enact our future hopes, then it will be a fact. Our coming years will be the prey of those whose actions now our future will foreclose. So we should ever move most constantly to write our autograph on what our future is, or else effectively our epitaph will be, he failed to make life's story truly his. The next one, very miscellaneous, may need a bit of background. Donald Trump, when president, had a henchman in the House of Representatives called Devin Nunes, He had a tendency to say somewhat stupid things and was believed to report back to Trump in the White House about any Republican criticism of him. Someone set up a spoof website for Devin Nunes' cow and a little later, when he reacted by threatening to sue, another for Devin Nunes' mum. 
He was a farmer of some sort. This is called How to Get Yourself a Cow. There's no one quite like Devin Nunes, who's lived through nearly 50 Junes, yet still has not a single clue of what's the reasoned thing to do. He has some rather silly views and gets himself onto the news by doing jobs for Donald Trump, but most for getting quite the hump when someone parodied his Twitter, making him feel very bitter. They set a site up for his cow and stupidly he made a vow to sue the person, Twitter too, who joked about him, silly moo. Quite quickly, cow, with 1k likes, surpassed her owner, Number hikes to 700,000 now, too many for a simple cow. He vowed to sue, his time had come, when up popped Devin Nunes' mom. She soon got many followers too, so Devin promised he would sue this Twitter fraud that aped his ma. Would such a case get very far? His lawyer spoke just yesterday and hadn't very much to say, for Twitter won't reveal the names of untold authors fun and games. The First Amendment helps the site, but Devin does not think he might acquire much more publicity than if he didn't try to see if he could get far, far more rich, because his ego has an itch. Dear Devin, don't become so bitter. You've set yourself up as a sitter. June 2020 seems to have been a very productive time. I suppose there was less than usual to do because of Covid. The last poem and the next from the nature section were both written that month. This next is an attempt to describe the wind. Breezy today. The rushing breeze today makes the Lombardy poplars at the bottom of the recreation ground assume a graceful swaying, a sort of slow motion movement, somewhat at odds with the gustiness of the today's blow. There is a contrast, too, between this weaving to and fro by the trees as a whole and the fluttering shimmer of all those individual leaves, the higher the faster, that brings about, if one stands at the base in shelter, a gentle susurration as each leaf brushes against the others. Over the next few days, isobars are forecast to diverge and the breeze we have today will slow to a shy whisper. And here, to round off, is the fourth and final instalment of Marrakesh Holiday. I think the next week we shall set out with the family by car from Oswestry, Shropshire, to the south coast of Spain. Marrakesh Holiday, Part 4 Up early for a breakfast swift, we find the driver in his shift. A fawn Mercedes waits outside, and soon towards our goal we ride, accelerating from the town and into miles of dusty brown. At first it's flat, but in a while we reach the foothills of the mile-high Atlas range we've come to see. The road begins to twist and be a suite of hairpins left and right, with rushing streams in valleys tight. Here fragile bridges cross the water, to some villages that ought to tumble from their parlous sight, but somehow cling with all their might to steepling hillsides terraced for small fields to eke a living poor. Still steeper goes the winding road, but our fine driver's sterling mode of steering takes us round each twist as gently as the stomach whist, until there is a sudden pause. 
the driver exits for clear calls, but soon he's back. We travel on, we're near the top, it's there, it's gone. There is a wall of cloud that was not able to o'ertop the pass for rising warm air on our flank. The fog is thick and cold and dank. We edge on downwards, then, in turn, we let a car go by and learn the camion will now let us pass, but shortly we come to a ghastly scene, the murk embedded too far in the bonnet of Kangoo. The road is blocked by cars and folk who wonder how the bloke could be so foolish as to drive as he did if he wants to stay alive. Our driver stops the lorry near. Its coming was a thing to fear. The taxi man gives in his card. One car is moved about a yard and we can pass on down the road, now creeping at the speed of toad. At last we come to clearer air and Turandant, we're nearly there. A circuit of the town we make, we wonder where our lunch to take, but as we're heading out again, we saw a restaurant we fain would use as it has got a roof where we can sit and eat aloof. After a fair meal, we set out on foot to see what is about, and as we pause to check the book, we're offered to be shown the souk. He's not a guide, but student lad, but we still end up in shop of dad. The caravanserai is cool, though short of camels as a rule. In modern day, we soon are led to carpet shop, as I've just said, where other Anglos are the prey, though for a mint tea we dare stay. Well, that's that for today. I hope you'll be with me next week for the next episode of Pears Poetry Podcast. Hello, this is John Pear again with episode 17 of Pears Poetry Podcast, mainly romantic. Once more, our first poem, poem is a sort of sonnet, in that it has 14 lines, though no particular metre and no rhymes, which I wrote in early December 2015. Caroline and I had met in person for the first time less than six months earlier, but time wasn't on our side. By the time this was written, she was already 61 and I was 68. She was living and working in Liverpool and I was down in Herefordshire. I tended to communicate by poem. This is number 65 in a sequence that now exceeds 350. I miss my love. Six days apart and I miss my love and have done since day one. I miss her voice, her laugh, her scent. I miss her skin, her feel, her hair, the softness of her and that she loves my touch. I miss her touch too, her gentleness, her art of touching so it stimulates, it thrills, it excites. I miss her response to me, her sensuality, her sexiness. I miss our sharing time a drink, a meal, a bed. I miss our communication, mental, verbal, physical. I miss her intellect, her competence, her quick mind. I miss her vulnerability, her openness, her honesty, her self-doubt. I miss her warmth, her support, her compliments. I just miss her being around to love and to be loved by me. My second poem also has 14 lines, this time with more metre and a rhyming scheme. 
I think it was an exercise suggested by Stephen Fry's useful book, The Ode Less Travelled, but I found I have sorted it into miscellaneous. Nuisance calls. The phone is ringing several times per hour and often does it when I'm in the shower. Whoever rings me does not leave a clue of who they are or what they want to do. I have a friend who rings me quite a lot, but she would leave a message like snot. The office likewise wants me to ring back and also tries my mobile to keep track if I can do a run that no one can, as long as client can get in my van. So who are all the others ringing me? Sometimes I'm home, my time is fairly free. I answer one or two who want to know if I've had PPI or whiplash blow. Our third poem in this episode is again one about nature, by and large. It is also from my sequence of poems written to, for or about Caroline, but in September 2020, number 333. Bringsty is a local common administered by a manorial court. I didn't realise such things still existed in this day and age. Bringsty. We walked up the hill from the van to the oak coppice at the top. Although we had been there before, we were again thrilled by the view. A 180-degree vista centred on the Mulvans, cool enough to avoid haze, so clear and sharp. Below us were fields and farmsteads, old as the hills themselves, but now using modern machinery and few workers. How times have changed in that regard, but in many ways, how little has changed. Cows and sheep safely graze peacefully. The seasons move on, not so differentiated in these days of climate change, but still ploughing, drilling, weed control, harvest, rotation of crop planning for next year and repeat again and again, generation after generation, nature regenerating. We felt blessed and happy with our lot. As I indicated at the end of episode 16, the abroad section will, for perhaps three episodes, hark back to a family holiday in a friend's finca up in the hills of the Sierras, just inland from the southern coast of Spain in 1983. We went by car and we took three weeks, half a week travelling down, half a week back, and two weeks in the property, with a number of excursions within Andalusia. I'll spare you the purely travelogue parts, though they are in rhyming couplets. Those are broken up by three pieces in differing metres, the first of which is about France. Dear France. Dear France, two years a stranger to me. You spell no danger to me now. I slip back to your rhythm with great ease. You grant a welcome to me with these guard of honour poplar trees. Your long straight root, which undulate, bid me within you some time to perambulate. How? I wish to drive down your straight roads at leisure, drift down your broad riviere with pleasure, taste of your gastronomic treasure. Dear France, I love your stately beau chateau. Along those broad slow rivers, des grands bateaux, sow. Through drowsy villages we pass, 
Old men by barterbacks with glass in hand play bull without a blade of grass. To wide green fields with buttercups golden, vineyards and flat valleys that enfold them, I bow. Steep gorges with castles perched precarious, mountains both beautiful and nefarious, I love above all your characters various, dear France. That's all for this week. I hope we can meet over episode 18 shortly. Goodbye. Hello again. It's John with episode 18 of Pears Poetry Podcast, Joys and Trials of Life. If you just found me and like what you hear, don't worry. You can, at your own speed, catch up on the previous 17 episodes. As with the patterns so far, we start with a sonnet that I wrote in February 2020 while on a skiing trip with my friend Graham Barker. One always hopes, while on a one-week-in-the-year skiing experience, that falling snow will keep itself to itself, apart from overnight. But it doesn't always work out that way. It's snowing. Snowflakes driven by a gusty wind pass across the window of my room. Beyond an empty moving chairlift tells that few are keen to ski, the light is flat. The morning brought a frozen icy piece, the frequent use of which new powder spread and with some softening by the climbing sun produced much better skiing than last year's. The sunshine showed just how the snow was set, and we with confidence more swiftly skied, so more relaxedly with less tired limbs, and fewer stops we made as we swept down the hill. The learner groups we had to time our runs around, but when they went for lunch, what fun we found. On the 27th December 2021, Caroline's daughter Claire and her husband Jimmy were staying with us, and the four of us went down into Bromyard to see the Christmas lights, a fabulous display each year, particularly given the small size of the town. Very briefly, as I called back to the other three, I noticed that my speech was slurred, but it passed and I thought nothing more of it. However, in the third and fourth weeks of January, I had a series of different fleeting symptoms, with three or four of them clustering over the last weekend of the month. I rang the doctor on the Monday morning, and by the 3rd of February, when I wrote the next poem, I was waiting to go into hospital, as it turned out on the next morning, for an endarterectomy, scans having shown that both my carotid arteries were significantly narrowed. Limbo. I'm caught up in limbo, and I don't mean the dance, for I've had some small symptoms, and it seems there's a chance that I might have a stroke that could change my whole life, and instead of a widow, I still want a wife. I've taken my new pill. It means that my blood does not clot so thickly as otherwise it would, and I must go back to the hospital quite soon, which may even be this very afternoon. The call has not come yet, and come soon it must, or it's ashes to ashes and old dust to dust. I don't want to go yet, I love her too much, and live for her love and the warmth of her touch. I'm not looking forward to what they must do, but I don't wish it onwards, and none else will do in my stead, so face it full bravely I shall, and avoid for much longer my funeral pole. 
Oh, phone, you should ring now. Put my heart at rest and give me the tidings. No more of this stress that I have been scheduled to yield to the knife that's wielded to lengthily prolong my life. I wrote two further poems about this, Intermission and Limbo 2, which I'll include in the next two episodes. After something fairly miscellaneous, I customarily include something about the natural world. I've written a number of poems about Bromyard and the beautiful surrounding countryside, and here is one of them. Bromyard Downs. The clouds are stacked over Warren Wood today, piled up and from off-white to various shades of grey. Deserted for now by the breeze that brought them there against this rather monochrome backdrop, the trees, perhaps a mile from me, stand out in their myriad greens this early in their New Year growth, helping to show the extent to which Bromyard lies surrounded by the downs. Should there not be ups? This is not to suggest that the town lies in a basin. The land on which it stands falls towards the River Froome, which runs to its east, and on completely still mornings the temperature difference of air slightly warmed over the running water and the residual layer above from a starlit night creates a magical mist upon which I can look down from my upper window on land rising westwards towards Bredenbury and Lempster. On moving here seven years ago, I had assumed that the Froome flowed eastwards into the team, my side of Worcester, and thence into the Severn and onto the sea. But I now know that the Bromyard Downs are a watershed, and that the Froome runs south and subsequently southwest towards Hereford, joining with the Lug and then with the Wye to the east of that city. Local topography is curvy and seductive, leading the eye and constantly surprising the traveller as unexpected vistas emerge after each bend in the road. At this point in the year, there are fields of day-glow yellow, the oilseed rape immature as yet, though in a few short weeks on a sunny day, a honeyed scent will insistently enter a, an open car window. Only a few fields still show the rich red earth of this region. Pasture populated with young lambs and their mothers, cider orchards coming into full flower, fresh arable crops and stands of timber make up the rest of a pretty patchwork. Our fourth poem is usually one written while or about somewhere abroad. Last week it was a poem about the familiar things of France, through a lot of which we drove before reaching the border with Spain. Today's poem is on Spain. We drove the length of it down to Malaga before turning back northwards into the hills. Spain Revisited In Spain I once had picnic lunch among the Pyrenean hills. From alpine views I had no hunch the countryside contains such thrills flooding my eyes. I drive along the motorway towards the high plateau within. New views entrance and bid me stay as twists the road and turns to win ever more height. But oh, the scenes that greet the eye of olive groves and terraced vines, each piece of land from hilltops high to riverside in serried lines given to fruit. To southern lands where dwelt the moors, I come, 
eyes struck by sunshine bright, by colonnades in verdant courts, by reflex from each cottage white, clustered in groups. That's it for this week. Listen out for episode 19 soon. Thank you and goodbye.